Hello, everybody. Uh, my name is Paul Sturry, and uh, I'm a member of the staff at Mary Lee Environmental Learning Center of Goshen College, and an administrative faculty member here at this wonderful college, uh, a member of the Yoder Public Affairs Lecture Committee, a father and uh, a husband, and an inquisitive, active citizen of Goshen. Uh, I'd like to also introduce Gerald Job. He'll be assisting us tonight and interpreting. Thank you, Gerald. And in 1978, Frank and Betty Joe Yoder of Goshen created a, an endowed lectureship for Goshen College with the goal of enabling faculty, students, and community to hear nationally known speakers address current issues. The lecture series is now in its 31st year, and the, the Goshen community and Goshen College have benefited greatly from the generosity <clears throat> and foresight of Frank and Betty Jo Yoder. Each year, experts ch chosen from a wide variety of fields and vocations have visited our campus. Past speakers have included journalists, scholars, and politicians. We have had civil rights leaders, educators, activists, and winners of Nobel Peace Prizes. Our speaker this evening combines knowledge and passion about climate change, social justice, and ultimately the well-being of our local community and our planet. If you could please turn off your cell phones at this time, or at least quiet them. And I've invited Jeremy Good, an environmental science major at Goshen College, to introduce our speaker. Jeremy had a chance to see Bill, along with myself, at uh, Washington, D.C. two weekends ago at PowerShift 2009, a conference where 12,000 students gathered to talk about climate change and climate change legislation and to lobby their congresspeople and their senators about this issue. Let's welcome Jeremy. Bill McKibben is an author, educator, and environmentalist who writes about global warming, alternative energy, and the risks associated with human genetic engineering. As a college student, he was president of the Harvard Crimson newspaper. After graduating college, he began writing for The New Yorker. After several years at The New Yorker, he started publishing his writing in the form of books. He's written 12 books, including his most recent book, which is The Bill McKibben Reader, which is a compilation of his essays he's written throughout the years. In 2007, he published Deep Economy, The Wealth of Communities and the Durable Future, and Fight Global Warming Now. He has led various rallies to raise awareness about climate change. And he is currently working to raise awareness about the, three, uh, the number 350, which I'm sure we'll hear about tonight. He also continues to contribute articles to the New York Times, the Atlantic Monthly, Harper's, Orion Magazine, Mother Jones, the New York Review of Books, Granta, Rolling Stone, and Outside. Bill currently resides with his wife, writer Sue Halpern, and his daughter, Sophie, in Ripton, Vermont. He is a scholar in residence at Middlebury College. Bill McKibben is a man of insightful and clear words that help people to understand what kind of situation the environment is in 
and what we need to do about it. Please join me in welcoming Bill McKibben. Well, thank you, Jeremy, very much for that kind introduction. And thank you all for being here. It's a real pleasure for me to get to be here, perhaps more of a pleasure for, for me than for you. It's, um, um, it's always, you always, when you invite someone to speak whose most famous book bears the optimistic title, The End of Nature, um, it's your own fault for... Um, the, um, the reason, or one reason, that I'm so pleased to be here tonight is because uh, I spend most of my time talking to entirely secular audiences, um, and uh, sometimes it's a great relief to be in the company of um, other people of faith. So I hope that no one will take it amiss if at least a little bit in the course of the evening I make uh, a, a reference not only to the science, but also to the scriptures a little bit. I should warn you before starting that I'm no theologian. Um, I'm a Methodist, a Methodist. <laughs> I'm a Methodist Sunday school teacher, but in a, uh, in a church so small that the um, requirements, we were very backwoods, um, the, um, the, our church could fit in this auditorium six or seven times, and, and hence the requirements for teaching Sunday school are not particularly onerous. Um, if you're able on Christmas Eve to take a, a tea towel and turn a fourth grader into a respectable Palestinian shepherd, you're, you're pretty much in. I mean, that's pretty much all that's required. Um, we got to begin with the physical reality of where we are. As I say, and as I warn you, this first part of this will be depressing, and I will do my best to move past that as we go along. Twenty years ago, when I wrote the first book about climate change for a general audience, The End of Nature, it was a hypothesis this idea that humans were burning enough coal and gas and oil and hence injecting enough carbon dioxide into the atmosphere to materially alter the climate seemed on the one hand scientifically powerful. We knew enough about the molecular structure of CO2 and its heat trapping properties to be able to predict with some confidence that it would warm the planet. On the other hand, it seemed emotionally counterintuitive. The idea that we'd grown large enough as a species to materially affect everything that happened on the surface of the Earth, because that's what we're talking about, that increment of heat trapped in our narrow envelope of atmosphere drives everything that happens, the speed of the wind, the progress of the seasons, the height of the oceans, uh, everything that's not tectonic or volcanic is, derives its energy from, from the sun. That we were big enough to be doing that seemed somehow unlikely, hard to get our heads around. And so science went to work. Science went to work with the power of its dialectic method. 
and people studied this issue with more money and with more resources and technology and with more man hours than any question like it had ever been studied before. And by about 1995, the world scientific community was able to declare with pretty firm consensus that indeed human beings were heating the planet and that it was going to be a serious problem. It was a kind of wake-up call to the Earth that we had grown large enough that we were casting this kind of shadow. Since then, it's as if the planet has been conducting a thorough peer review of that science to make sure it was correct. We've had all 10 of the warmest years on record since 1995. And in fact, and here's the part that you may not be quite as sort of up to date on. I know you know about climate change, but in the last two or three years, this hypothesis that had turned to consensus has now, among the scientists at the um, cutting edge of the research, turned into a kind of panic. Um, it's become entirely clear in the last few years that both the scale and the pace of the changes that we are causing on this planet are larger and faster than we expected, much larger and much faster. And we're moving into a series of really terrifying tipping points and thresholds. This became emotionally clear, though to scientists had been suspecting it for several years, became very obvious in the summer of 2007 when all of a sudden Arctic sea ice began to melt with a real vengeance. Now, it had been melting for 30 years. There had been about 1% less each year, you know, on average. But in the summer of 2007, we crossed some kind of threshold, and ice just began to disappear from the Arctic. We were losing an area about the size of California every week. By the time the Arctic melt season was over in late September and the long northern night descended and things began to refreeze, by that time there was 25% less ice than there had ever been before, at least in human history. Those wonderful images of the Earth from Apollo 8 that you all have seen, the gorgeous pictures of this blue, white marble floating in the black void of space, those pictures were as out of date as my high school yearbook picture. You know? It doesn't look like that anymore. It's not anywhere near as white up on top as it was then. And that was both proof of the fact that we were warming the planet very quickly, and it was a reminder of how dangerous it was to kick off that process, because it's one of the most obvious and quick feedback effects that we can imagine. You take that nice white ice off the top of the Earth that reflects 80% of the incoming solar radiation, and you replace it with blue water that absorbs about 80% of the sun's energy. And so you amp up this whole reaction. And there turn out to be feedback loops like this, booby traps, as it were, all over the Earth. And we're now encountering them, one after another. Up north, for instance, as we melt ice and as we melt permafrost over Alaska and Canada and Siberia, 
we're learning that there's an immense amount of methane, CH4, another heat-trapping gas stored underneath that permafrost, and it's beginning to seep out in very large quantities into the atmosphere. Uh, scientists the last two winters have noted that even across the coldest parts of the north, in Siberia, in the coldest parts of the winter, there are many marshes and ponds and streams that aren't freezing because there's so much methane bubbling out that it serves as a kind of keep them open all the time. These kind of feedback loops are one of the reasons that scientists are now, as I say, beginning to really panic. To understand that this is not, and here's what I need you to understand too, not merely one very large problem on a list of problems, but an emergency the like of which we've never faced before. We have a number to define this emergency, finally, and it's the most useful thing that's happened in the last couple of years. And it's the only number I really want you to remember tonight, and I'll come back to it in a little while. That number is 350 as in parts per million carbon dioxide. Before the Industrial Revolution, the atmospheric concentration of CO2 was 275 parts per million CO2, and it had been stable at more or less that number, give or take 10 parts per million, for all the 10,000 years of human history, at least. Okay? Call it the Eden number or the Shakespeare number or whatever your you know, uh, orientation is. That's the carbon dioxide concentration at which civilization developed. When we began burning all that coal and gas and oil and pouring CO2 into the atmosphere, that number began to rise. But we never knew where the red line was going to be because this is a big experiment that we have not carried out before. And our hope, eh, kind of semi-expectation always, was that it was someplace up around double that, 450, 500, 550 parts per million, okay? Which would be good because that's still some decades away, four or five decades maybe. Um, and, and hence, there's a little bit of time to deal with it uh, in, in the kind of evolutionary ways that we're used to dealing with things politically, to take some steps and deflect trajectories and end up <clears throat> maybe in the right place. But people had begun to suspect that those numbers were too high. And after Arctic, the Arctic melted in the summer of 2007, a melt that was repeated last summer, when the Northwest and Northeast passages were both open simultaneously for the first time when you could circumnavigate the Arctic on open water. After that, our foremost climatologist, the NASA scientist, Jim Hansen, who's had the biggest computer model of the climate and been running it for the longest time, he and his team published a series of papers in which they said that given both the real-time observational data and the mound of paleoclimate data that we've assembled over the last 20 years. All the stuff about what's happened over deep time that we've assembled from glacial cores and things like that. That the number actually is 350 parts per million. That's the red line. Anything north of that, they said, in the abstract of the scientific paper that they published, in language unusual for a scientific paper. Anything more than 350 parts per million, they said, was not compatible with the planet upon which civilization developed or to which life on Earth is adapted. This is strong language. 
not only is it strong language, it's a really tough number. It's a really tough number because we're already past it. We're at 387 parts per million and rising two parts per million per year. That's why the Arctic is melting. It's not a problem for our grandchildren. In certain respects, it turns out to have been a problem for our parents, you know, um, though they didn't know it at the time. It's definitely a problem for us that we have to solve very, very quickly before the momentum of this system carries us any further down this path. Because the possibilities for what lies down that path are enormous, and we can already see them. It's not just the Arctic that's melting. The disruptions in so many other profound systems are, 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 are enormous. Warm air holds more water vapor than cold air, okay? That means you get more evaporation in dry areas, and hence more drought. And that's precisely what you're seeing. If you pick up today's edition of USA Today, the lead story is about how there's been less rainfall across the continental United States in the first two months of 2009 than in any year for which there are records. Okay. Three weeks ago, uh, the Australian Meteorological Office, you've seen the pictures of the fires sweeping across Australia. The Australian Meteorological Office announced that they were no longer going to use the term drought to describe what was going on there because, they said, drought implied that it was going to come to an end at some point. This, they said, was in many ways the new normal. Once that water is up in the air, it's going to come down someplace. In wet areas, we've seen flooding uh, of a sort that we have no records for over and over and over again. The number of storms at this latitude that drop more than two inches of rain in a 24-hour period, the real gully washers, the ones that erode soil, that cause all the other problems, those are up about 30%. That's a large increase in a basic physical phenomenon. Uh, I could go on and on and on with this, and I will a little bit in, in a few moments, but I want to just say for a second that this is more than, I think, a, a scientific problem. At some level, it has a powerful moral and even theological dimension that it's worth always remembering. Um, I mean, you could start quite easily just by thinking about the, the book of Genesis. Um, one of the things I've noticed about the Bible over the years is that there are more people who read the first page than the rest, you know? Um, and so anything on the first page, extremely important, because a lot of people don't get much further. And that story of creation is exquisite and beautiful and quite biologically profound. And what we're engaged in at the moment is the story of decreation, of taking apart, almost in perfect order, that world that's been assembled. The scientists now say that there's a very good chance, the best guess, is that if we allow global warming to continue unabated through the century, we'll lose something on the order of half the species on the planet. Half of all the life that we were born onto this earth with. Genesis is almost too easy. I, I wrote a book once about my favorite book in 
in either testament of the Bible, the book of Job in the Hebrew Bible, a book that's often was described over the years as very hard to understand, you know, uh, and I think it was hard to understand because I think it's been like a, a time capsule almost, waiting for the moment when it made, would make full sense. You all know the story, so forgive me for repeating its um, outlines. You know, Job, an honest man, uh, a very good man, but for reasons that he can't understand, finds himself uh, cursed by God flocks die, family dies, ends up living on a dung heap at the edge of town, covered with oozing sores. Not a good scene. And his friends keep coming, and they keep offering him the conventional wisdom of, the, oh, you've sinned, they say, or someone in your family sinned, and this is the problem, and that's why. And, so, and Job keeps saying, unlike, for some reason, we have this notion of patient Job, but in fact, just the opposite. Job keeps saying, no, no, that's not, I mean, I'm, you know, maybe I've been perfect, but I was a pretty good guy. I didn't do anything to deserve this. I demand that God come and explain to me what's going on. Give me some explanation for this. It goes on and on for many chapters like this, and uh, I think it falls into the category of be careful what you wish for, because God does appear. And, you know, the real theologians in the audience, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think God then delivers the longest soliloquy uh, that appears in either the Old Testament or the New. And it's a very interesting and powerful speech that he gives, that's speaking from a whirlwind, from a tornado at the end. It's a very, well, it's very extremely beautiful, this tour of the physical universe and all the animals, but it's also unbelievably sarcastic and taunting, you know. Just, okay, who are you, he keeps saying to Job, to, to ask questions like this. Do you know where I keep the storms? Can you whistle up a thunderstorm? Do you set the boundaries for the oceans and tell the waves here you shall break and no further? It goes on and on like this, like three chapters, you know, just over and over. Finally, Job just basically says, sorry I asked, you know, and, and, and sits down, okay? Um, and that's basically, uh, that's basically always been our posture vis-a-vis -vis the larger world and the divine. We're small in a big place, you know? Um, we're not in charge, we're not in control. Uh, we're a small part of something big, but no more. In the lifetimes of the people in this room, we have grown to the stature where we can answer right back. Say to God, well, you know, yeah, we set the boundaries of the oceans too. It's become very clear that that, that the oceans are rising now and will rise much further in the course of this century. We used to think, even three or four years ago, that that rise would be about two feet, mostly from thermal expansion. Warm water takes up more space than cold, okay? But in the last couple of years, those figures have been revised and revised very quickly. And two feet would have been, doesn't sound like much, but it would have been a lot, okay? That's enough to drown half the world's coastal marshes and wetlands. It, brings the ocean a lot further in on the average eastern 
coast beach, say, that slopes in at about one degree. It brings the ocean, uh, uh, each rise of a foot brings the ocean 90 feet further in. We now think, because it's become clear that Greenland and the West Antarctic are much less stable and much more dynamic and liable to melt more easily than we'd understood, we now think that that rise in sea level this century, unless we get our act together very quickly, may be more on the order of six or seven feet, okay? Six or seven feet is a civilization-challenging number. There is not enough money in the world to defend against, that turns every coastal city in the world into New Orleans, and it turns New Orleans into Atlantis, okay? It's, it's not a number that we can really cope with. Um, um, and of course, the science would indicate that that sea level will just keep rising and rising as the centuries go on. The point is, at least theologically, that we've become large enough to be able to, as it were, spit in God's face. Um, um, answer right back. Uh, uh, blaspheme in some extraordinary way that we couldn't have imagined before. Okay, let's leave behind Job. Let me tell you a story. Uh, I've, my, in my work, both as a reporter and as a sort of activist, I spend a lot of time out on the road around the world. One of my favorite places to go is a country that I'm sure some people here have been to, to Bangladesh. Are there people who've been to Bangladesh here? A few. You can confirm it. It's one of the most beautiful countries on earth. Extraordinarily green, unbelievably fertile. Uh, it's the delta where the great sacred rivers of Asia, the Ganges and the Brahmaputra, come pouring down out of the Himalayas and into the Bay of Bengal. So they leave every year, there's a little gentle flood and they leave behind this beautiful layer of silt and because it's equatorial, I mean things just, trees that would be 100 years old in Indiana are a year or two old in Bangladesh. You can just see them spring out of the ground. It's 140 million people live in an area the size of Wisconsin, okay? Half the American population in an area the size of Wisconsin, but they feed themselves because the place is so fertile. On the other hand, they're in a certain amount of serious trouble now. For one thing, all those high altitude glaciers up in the Himalayas that provide the water for them and many other people are melting and melting very fast, just like the ones in the Andes and just like the snowpack in the Sierra Nevadas that waters California, okay? Very fast. I've been in parts of Tibet. There's an area of Tibet roughly the size of Italy where glaciers, the world's biggest concentration of alpine glaciers, give rise to the Yangtze, the Yellow, the Mekong, the Solween, the Brahmaputra, and the Ganges. One third of humanity lives downstream from those glaciers. And they live downstream from those glaciers because those glaciers are there. We've been in this very nice period, what uh, Earth scientists call the Holocene, where it's been warm enough that we don't have ice across the continental interiors, the glaciers have retreated to the poles, but cold enough that those high altitude glaciers, which provide a kind of permanent reservoir and melt gently in the summer, can provide drinking water for, and irrigation water for people all over the continent. 
those are gone. They're going very, very fast. They're beginning to run out even these few years in the Andes in many places and within decades in the Himalayas. So that's one problem for Bangladesh. Another problem is that as the ocean rises, most of Bangladesh is only a few meters at best above sea level. We're already seeing enormous saltwater intrusions into wells and farms, and it's just going to get worse. But when I was last there, the biggest thing that was going on, uh, the most immediate thing, was an outbreak of a disease called dengue fever. Okay? Dengue is a mosquito-borne disease carried by a mosquito called Aedes aegypti. It is remarkably sensitive to increases in both temperature and humidity. It expands its range very easily. It loves the warmer, wetter world that we're creating for it, okay? Uh, the World Health Organization has said it will be the emergent disease of the 21st century, and already incidents in this decade has climbed 200, 300, 400 percent across South America and Asia. In Brazil last year, the army had to open field hospitals across the interior of the country because people were arriving in emergency rooms at the rate of 400 an hour suffering from dengue fever. It's a nasty disease. It's called breakbone fever, and they were having a, a, an outbreak of it, the first big outbreak of it in Dhaka, this capital city of Bangladesh when I was there. I was spending a lot of time in the slums, so I got bit by the wrong mosquito and came down with dengue myself. I was as sick as I've ever been. It's one of those tropical fevers. When you get it, you know, when you're in the fever stage, you hold out your arm and it's as if the water is running off it like rain off a gutter in a thunderstorm, you know? Um, and then two minutes later, you're shivering. I remember there's no real treatment for it. Why would there be? Only poor people have gotten it in the past and there's no prevention for it, okay? But I remember going down to the main hospital in Dhaka. Uh, there wasn't anything they could do for me or really for anybody else unless they were in the most acute hemorrhagic phase and then they could try to give them transfusions. But the main ward was a room much bigger than this one and there were cots, you know, as far as you could see and people on every one of them shivering and many people lying on the floor in between the cots because there weren't enough shivering. And in between shivering myself, I remember sitting there looking out at that room and thinking, God, these people have done absolutely nothing to deserve this. Okay. 140 million people. But when the UN tries to measure how much carbon they emit in Bangladesh, you can't get a number. It's a rounding error in the calculations. The bicycle rickshaw is the main means of transport. Okay? Most people aren't connected to the electric grid. They are not causing global warming. But like poor people around the world, they're going to be the most affected earliest on. We're all going to be affected in very large ways, but they're going to take the brunt of it because they're living closest to the edge, all right? The 4% of us who live in this country produce 25% of the world's carbon dioxide. We've been producing it for 100 years. Carbon's residence time in the atmosphere is over a century. It'll be even another three or four decades before the Chinese who are now producing almost as much CO2 as we are, are as responsible for global warming as we are, and even then there'll be four times as many of them. Four percent of us producing 25 percent of the world's CO2. If you want to do the moral mathematics, one cot in four in that ward in Dhaka is on us. 
that's our contribution to their plight. Which means, for me, as I say, I'm no theologian. My reading of the scriptures is always pretty simple. And that's good because I think they're actually fairly simple. When I sit and read the gospel, the thing that always strikes me is how beautifully, usefully, emphatically repetitive it is. Okay? The disciples play the part of all of us a little dim. Okay? They keep forgetting what the point is. And they keep asking, what's this about again? They, and Jesus always has to say over and over again, Love your God and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what it's about. Love your neighbor, love your... On and on and on, okay? Well, whatever we're doing, it is the opposite of what loving your neighbor is. We're drowning our neighbor. We're giving them dengue fever. We're doing everything that we can to make their lives essentially impossible. It was when I came back from that trip to Bangladesh, that I, something in me snapped. And after 15 years or so of writing and kind of speaking about all this, I felt the very deep need to do something more. But I didn't know what. I felt the need to do something more because all that writing and speaking that uh, I and others had done had essentially accomplished nothing. We'd done nothing as a nation to begin to change. We'd passed no laws. We'd done nothing. We just continued to pour more carbon into the atmosphere with each passing year. So I wanted to do something, but I didn't know what to do. I mean, I'm a writer. Writers, by their nature, are extra introverts, you know. I like to sit in my room and type. Um, um, I live up in Vermont in the woods. What was I going to do? I called up a few of my friends, other writers up in Vermont. I said, oh, here's what we'll do. Let's go up to Burlington, which is our main city in Vermont, and we'll sit in on the steps of the federal building, and we'll get arrested, and there'll be a little story in the paper, and at least we will have done something. These guys are all just as clueless as me. They were, oh, this sounds like a good idea. Let's do that. <laughs> <clears throat> Happily, some one of them calls the police up in Burlington. What'll happen if we do this intrepid stunt? And the police say, nothing will happen. <laughs> Stay there as long as you want. Okay, we'll come visit you. Um, so we have to recalibrate, okay? Um, and I just started sending out emails so everybody know. So we're gonna go on a, a kind of pilgrimage, a sort of march. And we left about three weeks later. This was the summer of 2006. We left from... Um, Robert Frost's old summer writing cabin up in the Green Mountains, because he's kind of the patron saint of Vermont, you know, and because we like that most cliched of all high school English class poems, the one about the road not taken. It seemed sort of apropos to the situation we were in. So off we go, and we walk, and we walk for five days, and we're sleeping in fields at night, and I've got all the Methodist churches lined up so we can do programs in the evening along the way, you know. And we finally get to Burlington, and there's a thousand people marching. Now you all have to understand about Vermont, which is the second smallest state in the Union, okay? Uh, 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 a thousand people is an unbelievable horde of people. I mean, the cows are running in terror from the fence line, all right? Um, um, and it's more than enough 
to get all of our politicians who are running for office, this is the fall of 2006, to come meet with us down on the shore of Lake Champlain uh, for our final rally. Not only do they meet with us, they sign this, we've been carrying this raggedy piece of cardboard across the state, okay? And on it, it says that they will, I will pledge to work to cut carbon emissions 80% by 2050, okay? Which at the time was a very radical idea. Way more than any politician, only scientists thought it was a good idea, no politicians. But all the people running for office signed, and not just the liberal Democrats, of whom we have plenty in Vermont, but also the conservative Republicans. The woman who was running for Congress on the GOP ticket, and who almost won, had said two months before when she announced for office, she said what too many politicians always say. Uh, we don't know if this is real. More research needs to be done, okay? Turned out that the more research that needed to be done was not about physics and chemistry. That research has been done. The more research that needed to be done was about how many people were going to walk across Vermont and ask her to change her mind, okay? And empirically, a thousand was enough because she signed. Um, and it was very good for us to see that, me and the young people I was working with, okay, because we'd allowed ourselves to become more cynical than we should have about the political system, and it was good to see it work sort of the way that it did. The only downer was to open the paper the next day and read this story that says, this thousand people that gathered here is probably the largest demonstration that had yet taken place about global warming in the United States. And we read that and we thought, good heavens, no wonder nothing's happening, you know? Um, there's no pressure. Can we make something, can we build a kind of movement to see if something can happen? Can we do it outside the confines of sort of funky Vermont, you know? And, and so we went to work. In January of 2007, we launched a, a website, stepitup07.org. And we didn't have any money, and we didn't have any organization. We were me and six college kids at Middlebury College, where I teach in Vermont. They were seniors. They weren't done with school, but they were more or less done with school, if you know what I mean. And they were ready to work very hard. Um, and, and, but we didn't have any real reason to expect much. Our secret hope was that we would organize 100 of these demonstrations, which is 100 more than there'd been. But we didn't tell anyone, because it seemed grandiose. Instead, instead, as can happen, given the web, the whole thing just took off. People understood it immediately. People were, turned out all across the country, there were people who were thinking, I've done what I can in my home, you know, I've changed my light bulb, but I know that changing my light bulb is not gonna solve global warming, okay? I wanna do something more, and here was a kind of way for them to do that, to intervene on a large scale, okay? April 14th of 2007, we had 1,400 simultaneous demonstrations in all 50 states, right? It was the biggest day of grassroots environmental action since the first Earth Day back in 1970. It was beautiful. One of the reasons it was beautiful was because it was all local and spread out. People had told us, oh, you should do a march on Washington, but we thought there was something a little odd about telling people to drive across America to protest global warming, okay? So <laughs> people did these things in their own communities. And if I can see if I can make this work, um, show these slides here for a minute. 
Um, um, people came up with the most fantastic ways to, to do this over and over again. That's Los Angeles. That's a little part of a big demo. That's the nation's capital, a lot of college students. That's my students with flashlights. That's lower Manhattan. Thousands and thousands of people in blue shirts, okay? Mostly just regular blue shirts. I like those, though. All holding hands, forming a human tide line, a kind of sea of people. Manhattanites sort of view the world through the lens of real estate. We wanted to show them what real estate would be underwater, you know, if things didn't go well. Key West, Florida. Only coral reefs in the United States. Continental U.S. Uh, an ecosystem that's going to be gone by all accounts in 50 years unless we get our act together. One of the, uh, there are people here who've dived on reefs at one time or another. I mean, it's unbelievably beautiful. I mean, it's a, partly because you go down there and all the fish can really care less that you're there, you know? I mean, it's, they just sort of, it's as if you went in the forest and the deer just came wandering up. I mean, it's one of the most enchanted corners of God's brain and we're gonna wipe it out in our lifetimes, all right? So they did an underwater demonstration. They had lots and lots of people in scuba gear underwater and sort of fish swimming back and forth, kind of interspecies collaboration. It was beautiful. Um, you know, just all over the place, people coming up with great things to do. All of, that's my daughter's junior high school. That's why I put that in. Huh? On the levee in New Orleans, um, you know, just all across the country. People turn, it's the marching band at Penn State, I think. Um, um, people climbing the great glaciated peaks of the West that aren't gonna be glaciated much longer. I mean, just, it was a beautiful day. And it was effective. Three days later, both Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama changed their environment and energy platforms and agreed to this goal of 80% cuts in emissions, okay? It had worked the way that we imagined it would, and we're beginning to see some of the payoff from that in the first few weeks of the Obama administration when we've done more, uh, done more in three weeks than all the presidents who've come before him to deal with climate change. I mean, we had eight years of the Clintons talking a good game and not doing a darn thing, and we had eight years of President Bush you know, uh, insisting that sort of covering your eyes and pretending not to notice was a policy, you know. Um, 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 so the last three weeks have been quite exciting and quite good. We were very proud of ourselves, okay? Very smug about this whole thing, I must say. Um, um, strenuously patting ourselves on the back. The only problem was, that about six weeks after all these demonstrations was right when the Arctic started to melt, okay? And it became extraordinarily clear that we had less time, that we thought that 80% cuts were not gonna be enough, not by 2050, that we needed to move much more quickly, and soon we had this number to work with, 350. A real target for the first time that told us exactly how far we could go and how quickly we had to move, and that talked about not just our country, but the whole world. And so we charted, started to imagine again, and I'm telling you this because I'm gonna ask for your help in a minute. We started to imagine how we might try to move the whole world at once. 
This is a big year, 2009. In December of this year, in the Danish capital of Copenhagen, the world will come together, all the world's leaders, to finalize a new treaty on carbon in the atmosphere, a successor to the Kyoto Accords. Three or four years ago, we thought this would be a kind of evolutionary follow-on to that, that we'd add some more countries and the targets would get tougher and things like that. Now, given the science, we know that it's our last plausible bite at the apple to get anything done. If we don't get it right this time, then the momentum of these systems will be so large that if we come back in five years or 10, it'll be too late to really arrest the progress of climate change. We'll just be dealing with the aftermath, okay? So it's a very big and very important year. And it's extremely difficult to imagine exactly how we'll get the kind of agreement we need. If those negotiations were held today, they'd produce something. All those guys are not going to go there and come back and say we failed. But what they'll produce at the moment is a treaty that is nowhere near good enough to do what needs to be done. It'll be a tepid uh, a half measure that'll cause more trouble than it will solve. So we have, what, seven or eight months, eight months to, to organize. What we decided to do was take this number, 350, and use it as the basis of that organization. Now, on the one hand, you would say, why? It's a kind of arcane number, parts per million, this and that. But there are two advantages. One, it actually sets a real limit. You know, it forces people to say, this plan does or does not bring us back towards that 350 target and in what kind of time frame. We want them while they're negotiating, thinking that they're going to be asked serious questions. The other advantage, other advantage, is that it turns out that Arabic numerals are just about the only thing that translate across linguistic boundaries all around the world. You can't have a slogan, you know, because it will doubtless end up meaning something completely, I remember, I mean, the only company that's really managed around the world to make its case over the years is Coca-Cola, right? The real global brand. And you've noticed that their slogan has been slowly reduced to nothing, okay? Coke is it, right? Uh, a, a slogan that literally with no meaning. Um, and the reason was because as they got more global, you remember their, some of you are old enough to remember that their last slogan before that was Coke adds life, okay? The problem with that was that apparently when they translated it into a number of African languages, the resulting billboards and things said, Coke brings your ancestors back from the dead, okay? Um, 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 350 was extremely appealing, okay? It means the same thing to everyone. So, we've spent the last eight or 10 months lining up networks all around the world, especially of young people. And we've got great networks now, young people in India and China and, and, and all over the world, young people and faith communities and all kinds of people. And now, now we're in the sort of home stretch and we're aiming for the date of October 24th, this fall. October 24th, a big global day of action all around this number. And we're going to have big things and small things. Big things. We're going to have climbers high up in the Himalayas with uh, 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 banners.
dinners and things. We're going to have 350 scuba divers down on the Great Barrier Reef. We just talked to a team of researchers who are going to be on Easter Island in the Pacific, the kind of poster child for what happens when you don't pay attention to the environment. And they've promised to hang banners from the noses of those big stone guys, you know. Um, all over the world, thousands of these things going on, big and small. We need one happening here. We need something beautiful and meaningful that you guys can figure out in your community that will make it onto the front pages of the Indianapolis papers and the Chicago papers and that we can show all around the world from that day, help build this awareness. One of the things, you need to do something really creative, but one of the things I hope you'll do as a kind of accompaniment to whatever you do is in your churches, if those churches have church bells, so ring them 350 times on that Saturday. We did a bunch of this in Massachusetts and uh, uh, New Hampshire this past fall as a kind of test, and it worked enormously well. It turns out no reporter can resist writing a little story about why suddenly the church bell is ringing 350 times in the middle of the afternoon. And you have to explain it to everybody in the church and maybe even to the neighbors so they don't freak out, and, and that's good. That's what organizing is. And that participation of faith communities is one of the really key parts of this whole thing. And it's been beautiful to watch it start to come together. I opened the email the other day, okay, and there were, there's an email from some people in Ladakh, which is a country high up in the Himalayas, and they're all Buddhist. There are very few Methodists there, I believe. They're all <laughs> Buddhists. And, um, and their Buddhist association, and they, they'd had a day-long symposium with all kinds of people. Apparently, they said that a 94-year-old man had gotten up and given them an hour-long lecture on how the weather had changed and so on. And at the end of the day, there were 1,500 Buddhist monks and nuns had formed this huge human 350 against the backdrop of the mountains. It was extremely beautiful extremely beautiful in many ways. In fact, it made me tear up because you know that people in Ladakh have done not a damn thing to cause global warming. But they've figured out that they can play some role in the solution of the biggest problem that we've ever faced. That's what I need y'all to figure out how to do, to play some role in that, to be a real part of this movement as it builds and builds fast. It needs to go way beyond usual political ideology. Right? There's nothing particularly liberal about what I've been telling you tonight. In fact, by any rational definition, there's something, something deeply conservative about what I've been telling you tonight. All right? It's a very radical proposition to say, let's keep pouring carbon into the atmosphere and see what happens, all right? That's the most radical idea you could come up with. There's something very conservative about saying what we need to do is slow down and try to preserve something like the world that we were born onto so that other people and other creatures have some chance. That's what October 24th will be about, 
and be about overwhelmingly. And I'm going to end just by, if you have questions, I'll take them in a minute, but I just wanted to show you as we end the, the, the little film, 90-second film that we put together to uh, see if I can make this work. We had the, pro the problem was, how do you talk about something like this, which is arcane and difficult and things, how do you do it without any words at all, so people all around the world can see? And a wonderful group of friends of mine who were filmmakers came up with this, which we really like and which has been viewed millions of times. And I show it to you because I don't only want you to organize something for October 24th. The real reason that I wanted to come here today is because I know that this community in particular has tremendous links around the world. That the tradition of this college and the faith that it grows out of has always been very international, very tied to the idea of service, very tied to the idea of connection, that you guys have in your email address books just what we need. Links around the world to people who can hear and help with this message. Okay, and that's as much as anything, what we need of you. Look, the people organizing this 350 thing, there are seven of us, okay? Each one of the young people that I'm working with is in charge of a continent, all right? So, <laughs> we're not gonna do it by ourselves, okay? This is on you. We'll provide as many materials and whatever as we can, but we really, really need your help. Let me see if I can make this work. See if the sound gave the sound. I can't promise you that this is gonna work. Um, in certain ways, it's a kind of Hail Mary pass, you know, thrown at the end of the game when you're behind, and we are behind. This is not like other social movements that we've had, because it's time limited. I was thinking about this a lot this year, because of course it was the 40th anniversary of the assassination of Dr. King last spring. And so they showed over and over again 
the talk he gave on the last night of his life. And you've all seen it. I said, I've been up to the mountaintop and I've seen the promised land and I may not get there with you, but you will get there. Absolute faith and confidence. Now, people in the civil rights movement had to be way braver than any of us. Nobody's going to shoot you for talking about global warming. All right. But they had the one great luxury of knowing that in the end they would win. Dr. King always said at the end of his talks, quoting from the abolitionist Theodore Parker, always said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. We're going to get there. This problem isn't like that. The arc of the physical universe is short, and it bends toward heat. All right? And unless we solve this problem soon, we will not solve it. The best scientists have told us, Rajendra Pachari, the Indian scientist who runs the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, said recently that if we hadn't made large-scale change beginning by 2012, then the momentum may be too great to overcome. 2012 is an interesting number. Unless I'm mistaken, those of you who entered college last fall will be graduating in 2012. Okay? No use waiting to get out of school to tackle this. We need your help now. We need this to be something that you, that you join in with us heart and soul on. And so I thank you so much for caring enough about these kind of issues to come out tonight and listen. And I thank you in advance for helping us as the year goes on. Thank you very much. Thank you.